Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk. Happy Hour Radio, sponsored by Mary Hill Winery. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Hello, Pacific Northwest, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, advanced sommelier, your master mixologist, and commodore of cocktails. More importantly, your weekend wine guy, right here on 570 KBI. Thanks for joining us right uh, Saturdays at 6 o'clock. We've got a whole hour, a happy hour of fun. And uh, it is March. We are in the middle of March, and it is Washington Wine Month. And uh, you better be making plans to see me out at Taste Washington. That is Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. TasteWashington.org. It's March 26th to the 29th. Uh, evening events, some great seminars, and of course, an opportunity to taste uh, literally a thousand Washington wines and ciders and more. So check it out at tastewashington.org. I'll be there. And uh, if you haven't made your plans yet, uh, this Monday you can check out the Wine Academy at the Space Needle. My friend Jeffrey Dorgan, the director of wine and sommelier, is hosting a wine class. So if you want something a little more intimate, uh, you and 30 of your best friends can check out uh, the Sky City, which uh, you'll have some wine, some great food, and of course, uh, an education with the sommelier Jeffrey Dorgan. That's spaceneedle.com backslash wine academy. Well, the world is awash with Washington wine this March, and I'm excited to, to save my palate for Taste Washington, or of course the Wine Academy. Um, but I'm going to venture, uh, when we have rock stars in town, we have to, to open up our doors and get them on our chairs. And right now I've got an Italian rock star uh, from the... Piedmont region, which is in northern Italy, uh, and f- more importantly, from the commune of Barbaresco, I've got the managing director of Produttori del Barbaresco, Mr. Aldo Vaca. Aldo, welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you. Thank you for hosting me. Excited. Welcome to the U.S., and um, I'm a huge fan of, well, I, I say every great wine in the world has one thing in common, and that's acidity. And when we think about uh, Piedmont, uh, northern Italy, we've got the the world class, the king of the the grapes, uh, king of the fog, maybe Nebbiolo. So, first of all, tell me about Prudatori del Barbaresco. It's a very unique winery in many aspects. Uh, the first uh, unusual aspect is that Prudatori del Barbaresco is a small co-op, which is a very common way to make wine in Europe. A little more unusual in North America. And uh, it's uh, in the present form, nowadays, formed by 50 farmers who each of them own their own individual vineyards and grow their own grapes. But instead of making wine or selling those grapes uh, to other wineries, they built a winery ni- in 1958 and uh, hired a winemaker and uh, hired myself later on and basically decided to make wine together. Each of them it was is a it was and it still is too small to have his own uh, his own operation, but together they were able to uh, achieve the goal of making wine and therefore uh, trying to get you know, a little better position in the market. Of course, in the fifties, you no, know, the market uh, the wine of wine was very different from what it is now. It was uh, mainly controlled by large wineries uh, buying grapes and making uh, simple wine. Price of grapes was very low. So these uh, uh, farmers were struggling and it was actually the priest of the 
Church of Barbaresco. <laughs> the Church of Barbaresco. Yeah. I want that on a T-shirt. Yeah, of course, you know, he had uh, two two goals. One, uh, to have good wines uh, to drink and to use in, in the mess. <laughs> the and sacraments. Also, and also to help his parish to to uh, stay alive, his uh, fellow villagers to have a little better living. So he pushed these uh, 19 kind of uh, stubborn Piedmontese farmers to uh, actually work together and do something together. Thanks to the charisma of the priest, they uh, followed his idea, his vision. So they started a small cooperative together and uh, they took three decisions that put uh, the Produttore Babresco a little aside from most of the other cooperatives that were um, borning pretty much in the same years in uh, Europe. And the number one most important decision was the decision to produce only Barbaresco. So even nowadays, the winery only deals with one grape, Nebbiolo, which is the grape responsible for the wine called Barbaresco as the village where the winery is. That decision to make only Barbaresco almost forced the winery to be very focused on quality because, of course, if you produce only one wine, uh, you put yourself in a very narrow uh, <laughs> market and in a very tough position. You, know, you cannot fail. You cannot uh, uh, really... You don't, have, you don't have many... You have one uh, chance. Exactly. And it's uh, one wine. Even more if the, if the wine is Barbaresco, which has never been, and it definitely wasn't in the 50s, an easy wine to sell or an everyday uh, drink for the local people. So again, uh, the, the winery decided to make only one wine, a kind of a specialty wine, which was Barbaresco. And because of that, in the years when... Uh, um, many wineries were producing just you now uh, simple everyday uh, wine to be drunk uh, without much thinking. Produttore de Barbaresco, already in the 50s and the 60s, started to get a reputation for fine wine making and fine wine producing. Well, this is a great story, and I have the pleasure of welcoming Aldo Vaca, the managing director of Produttori de Barbaresco here, uh, right off the plane and into the studio. And uh, what a great story. 1958, uh, one of the, was it a senor, a monsignor from uh, Italy. Do we have a name for him? Is yes. there some recognition? It was uh, Don Fiorino Marengo. Don Fiorino Marengo. And well. it's, uh, of course, uh, uh, very well respected and very well uh, uh, remembered in the village of Babresco, which is a very small village, but uh, very famous, but very small. I'm dying to go there someday, but, well, hopefully living to go. I should say living to go there someday. Well, uh, will the Purutori be releasing a special commemorative bottle for uh, Fino, uh, Dom Fignori uh, de Marengo? For Dom Fignori Marengo, we've been, uh, no, we've been waiting for the moment. We released a special bottle in uh, uh, a few years ago, in, in uh, 1994, when it was basically the centennial of the actual born of Barbaresco as a real wine. We can, uh, of course, a wine doesn't really born uh, in one day, but there is a sort of an unofficial burning date for the wine called Barbaresco, which was uh, eight, which is 1894. Interesting. Prior to 1894, you know, grapes were grown in the Barbaresco village. Of course, Nebbiolo grapes were at a certain reputation from the village, but they were mainly either turned in some simple everyday wine or sold to uh, the nearby uh, area of Barolo, which is the other great wine of the same uh, region made with the same grape, and to be turned into Barolo. So most of the owners of land in Barbaresco in the 19th century were now growing a little bit of grapes and selling those grapes to the, to the Barolo producers. And uh, 
uh, around the, uh, just around those years, uh, this, some of the you know, uh, most influential people in Barbaresco started to lobby uh, the Barolo uh, people to enlarge what it was the Barolo producing area, including also Barbaresco as one of the villager, villages where the wine Barolo could have been made since they were already buying grapes there. Of course, in those days, there was no appellation rule or strictly controlled the OCG or all those things that we have now. Of course, you can imagine what the Barolo people told to the Barbaresco uh, people. They said, no, thanks, we don't want uh, your village to be part of what is the <laughs> <laughs> historical Thanks, bar- but no Barolo. thanks, neighbor. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, they didn't give up. It was a particularly one, one man, another very important figure in Barbaresco, Signor Domizio Cavazza, which is considered the father of Barbaresco. He was a resident in Barbaresco and he was also the director of the wine school in the nearby town of Alba. And so he basically said, okay, if they don't want us to be part of their legacy, we are going to make a wine here. And if they call it Barolo over there, we call it Barbaresco here. So he started in the big mansion, which still stands in the middle of the village, a small co-op. In 1894, he put together nine landowners, of course the priest of Barbaresco in those days, and the bishop of the nearby town of Alba, which had land in, in Barbaresco. Now, in Italy, wine and uh, the Catholic Church has always been very, very connected, <laughs> <laughs> especially in the fine-producing wine uh, region. Funny how that happened in Burgundy, too. Huh? <laughs> and so, it, uh, together with these nine landowners, which, of course, uh, by the way, included also my grand-grandfather, uh, he convinced these guys to bring their grapes to the mansion. They turned into a brilliant wine, and here is where the Barbaresco history started in 1894. So in 1994, we did a special labeling out of uh, 5,000 magnums celebrating that event. So we will, we will do something for Don Fiorino as well, because he is the one that is responsible to bring back the history of cooperative in Barbaresco in, a, in, in the modern days. That's a great story. So you currently have 50 uh, farmers yes. uh, contributing have, wines to the cooperative? Yeah, we have 50 farmers. They, they, they uh, contribute their grapes, but only their Nebbiolo grapes. And that's the, only th- the other thing which we do, of course. They deliver to the winery only the Nebbiolo grapes. If they grow some uh, Barbera or some <coughs> Chardonnay or some other grapes, they, they do whatever they want with those. But when it comes to the Nebbiolo, they have to deliver... All so 100% of their Nebbiolo production to the to the winery produttore del Barbaresco. Well, when did Barbaresco uh, become a DOCG, Denominazione Origine Controllata? The first, uh, the first uh, four wines in Italy, together with uh, Brunello, Di Montalcino, Chianti, and Barolo and Barbaresco, in uh, with the vintage uh, 1981, the wine became DOCG. Prior to that, was also, there was also among the first one to become DOC with the vintage 1963. So Barbaresco right. has always been like in one of the leading red wine of uh, of Italy, although it's always been living a little bit in the shade of, of uh, Barolo, which, you know, uh, being a little more, uh, a little larger area, a little higher, longer history, you know, a little more reputate, reputation as a wine. But Barolo and Barbaresco are like twin brothers. Uh, they have you no know, similarities and differences, yet, you know, they're very similar wines. And nowadays they stand on the market uh, uh, at the same uh, at the same level. Well, uh, Nebbiolo produces one of the most delicious wines in the world, the grape it is. And uh, the Prudatori de Barbaresco, how how many bottles are you producing on an average year? 
Uh, these days, we're around half a million bottles, so we say 40,000, 45,000 cases, which are divided between a, a young lung and a biolo, which is the, the f- introductory level, if you want to call so, then a Barbaresco, which is our flagship wine, and then a bunch of Barbaresco single vineyards that we release only in the best years. Now, how did you determine those single vineyards? I, I understand you have nine single vineyard um, bottlings, and w- was there a, did it start out with three, and you added more um, as you went or did you have 20 vineyards to pick from and you ended up with nine? Both. We had of course a bunch of vineyards to pick from because uh, we started with 19 farmers but pretty soon we grew up to 25, 30, 35 and now we have 50 so we have holdings in most of the vineyards of, uh, of the Barbaresco appellation and the Barbaresco village in particular. We started releasing single vineyards in 1967 and we started with five. Really? Wow. So we were among the very first to do this a single vineyard program in the region uh, of Piemonte. And we started with five just because uh, I wasn't there in those days. But it was, those, <laughs> those were kind of historical areas where, uh, for example, Ovello and Pora are two areas, two vineyards, where Mr. Cavazza was already growing grapes back in the 19th century. And then some of the other areas were selected. In the 60s, the idea of... Uh, writing the name of the vineyard on the label became more and more uh, popular or fashionable among the farmers, among the uh, winemakers. Uh, Prior to that, uh, the idea from the winemakers was to get grapes from the best vineyards uh, and blend them together to make the perfect Barbaresco or the perfect Barolo. There was, of course, uh, some sense in it because you can get a little more color from one vineyard, a little more tannin from another vineyard, a little more precise fruit. So blending together, there's nothing wrong with that when you blend the good grapes, good Nebbiolo grapes from different vineyards. But there was also an economical reason because uh, um, up to the 60s, the vast majority of the wine, Barbaresco and Barolo, was produced by wineries buying grapes. So when you buy grapes, of course, you want to buy grapes from the best vineyards, but you don't really want those vineyards to be famous. Otherwise, next year... <laughs> it's gotta, more expensive. Exactly. you got to uh, pay more money. This is a great story. <laughs> I have the pleasure of having Aldo Vaca in studio, the managing director of Predatori the Barbaresco. And um, coming up after this break, we're going to dive into one of those single vineyard wines, the Ovello Reserva Barbaresco, which is a 2009. And we're going to start off with uh, the Lange Nebbiolo, which is the 2012. So um, if you're interested in Italian wines, you're at the right place. So stick around. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. He's live. He's here. Sean Hannity. Weekdays, noon to 3, only on Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle, Somalia, Christopher Chan. Hey, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. We have a special guest, a rock star guest in studio, Aldo Vaca from Frutatore del Barbaresco, um, talking about the king of red grapes in Italy, the Nebbiolo. And uh, Aldo, we've got uh, a Langi Nebbiolo and a Ovello Barbaresco. So tell me what Lange means. Yes, so Lange is the name of the region. Is in a way, is a little bit like a county in uh, here, and it's a larger area where all, um, a number of villages are, including the village of Barbaresco and the village of Barolo, as well as many, many others. So when you see the name Lange, 
on a wine label is usually a wine produced from the a larger area uh, with uh, different uh, grapes from different vineyards blended together. But uh, as it is in this case, it can also be like a, a second wine for the prime wine, which in this case is Barbaresco. So Lange is used for blending the grapes from uh, the, a larger area or to release uh, your Barolo or your Barbaresco younger uh, for a number of reasons. It can be from young vines, it can be from the lower part of the hill where the grapes are slightly less ripe, uh, or it can be just a, a decision of the winery that needs some cash flow and so <laughs> needs to sell the wine a little <laughs> younger, a little faster, because the the Appellation Barbaresco has a number of strict rules that control the production in terms of yield per hectare, time in the barrels, release time, which is normally minimum, which is minimum two years after the harvest. So if you want to release the wine one year after the harvest, for example, you cannot call it Barbaresco, but you can go down to... Even though it's the same grapes and the same Same, winemaking, it's just a matter of time. That's what the beauty of having some of those DOCG rules are, is that it maintains a consistency among the wines based on some rules, but not necessarily um, winemakers can do different things. Exactly. So at Produttore de Barbaresco, we basically only make Barbaresco wine. And then once the wine is made in the winery after fermentation, we select uh, what we think are the lighter batches of uh, Nebbiolo grapes that we received at the winery, the one that maybe are a little lighter color, they're less tannic, so less suited for long, long aging. We, we, uh, we use those batches to make the Lange Nebbiolo, the, the baby version of Barbaresco. But it's 100% Nebbiolo fruit, and it's 100% from the Barbaresco village. So it's a good way to uh, introduce yourself to the beauty of the Nebbiolo grape and to the uh, magic of the Barbaresco terroir, as the French say. And the Lange Nebbiolo spends six months in a large cask, another few months in the bottles and normally is released the one year after the harvest. Well, this is the 2012 Nebbiolo, the Lange, from Purutori de Barbaresco. Um, it's a delicious wine. If you're looking for something uh, that, if you're a Pinot Noir fan and you want to uh, get a break outside of the, the Pinot Noir family, um, jump into Nebbiolo, because this has great acidity, great structure, beautiful mouthfeel. You're talking about the same red fruits. Um, the acidity is nice and bright, uh, and there's just a little bit of texture from, from some, some, I don't want to call it oak aging, but you, obviously six months is not going to give you too much in its large format. So um, just a delicious little dollop of uh, that, um, well, oxidative-style winemaking with the oak. Uh, tell me about the flavors in this wine, the Langi Nebbiolo. It usually combines a, a distinct uh, uh, spiciness, which is normally like a white pepper kind of spiciness, with uh, a lot of bright red fruit uh, tones. And as you said, you know, a lively acidity in the finish. So... Uh, Spicy spiciness and red fruit, white pepper and cherry aromas, uplifted by the acidity. Uh, the spiciness more, is more evident when the wine is very young, after after a few months uh, of bottling. In this particular case, the 2012 has been in the bottles for one year and a half, so now it's definitely rounder, and the spicy flavors are giving a little more room to this kind of cherry or almost also kind of a floral character like rose petal. Very intriguing. As you said, the pin, uh, very Pinot Noir-like, but with a little more grip because the finish of the Nebbiolo grape and the Lange Nebbiolo wine in this case is all, 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 always extremely long and defined. And the tannins are are not shy, but they are well integrated with uh, with the fruit. But definitely a great food wine, especially if you think about matching it with you know some earthy 
with a spicy uh, recipe. Uh, it can stand the, the spiciness in the food extremely well. Well, it's uh, beautiful in the mouth, and you're right, the complexity of this wine, um, it, it's more for, it's not necessarily a novice wine. I mean, this is not the ripe fruit bomb that missed, you know, some Pinot Noir drinkers in the $23 price range. And this is a $23 wine, but it, it shows some great complexity and obviously the great structure with acidity and tannin. And uh, I think this is delicious with, uh, as you said, uh, earthy foods. Um, and even by the glass, I like that the tannins really dry your mouth pleasantly, so you want another sip. So that's the, the hallmark of a great food wine, bright acidity and tannins that dry your mouth for the next taste. Yes, so the... The month gets dry. The wine helps the uh, helps you to enjoy the the food, which is the great thing. The wine is never really takes center stage. It's more like a companion of the food. We have a saying in Piemonte: that you always drink your wine with your legs under the table, which means when you're eating, <laughs> because we normally we are not big in aperitif or no uh, charting and drinking. We definitely want our wine when we sit and have uh, the food in front of us. And this is what these wines uh, are naturally made for. The acidity, uh, the, the tannin uh, help to enjoy the food and, and the, the palate never gets tired. Which occasionally can be a problem, <laughs> oh, especially with some Nebbiolo. I mean, because it's it's a, a very powerful wine. Well, um, let's talk about uh, you have a uh, a village wine or the commune wine, just Barbaresco, which is your center tier, um, and uh, that's a thirty five dollar wine. So we have the Langi, which is more the regional wine of blending the uh, the Barbaresco, the the regular Barbaresco uh, release. Is is tell me about that? Is that a blend as well? It's a it's a hundred percent Nebbiolo, of course, a blend of different vineyards, different uh, hillside, different plot of uh, vineyards in the village of uh, of Barbaresco. Now we have these fifty farmers together. They control three hundred thirty acres of land out, out of uh, two thousand acres, which is the total Barbaresco appellation. So we have a really you know, large. Uh, you said two thousand acres is the total appellation wow. of okay. Barbaresco. Very small. Good to know. Okay, wine geeks, remember that. Put that in, <laughs> in your Rolodex. Yes, the total production for Barbaresco is less than four million bottles, and uh, we make half a million. So we are definitely. The, so the basically, largest, you're yeah. a small champagne house. You're one of the grand marks. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, let's jump into this uh, uh, Ovello Barbaresco. This is a Reserva wine, and that means it has a little extra extended aging yes. in some oak yes. um, prior to bottling, which that means, and also a little extra aging in the bottle as well, correct? Yes. So the Reserve program that we release uh, is uh, formed by nine single vineyards. So Reserva, for an Italian label, is... a uh, is a legal term of the appellation. It means extended aging. If you want to make a Barbaresco, you have to age it for two years. If you want to make a Barbaresco Reserva, it has to be aged for four years minimum before release. So all our Reserva that we are, reserva that we are selling are aged for three years in wood. Again, large, neutral cask, oak cask, and then one year in the bottles before they are put on the market. And uh, um, for Produttori, the Reserva program is formed by nine single vineyards, nine of the most historical vineyard sites in Barbaresco, which are notorious for producing you know, uh, high-quality grapes, but also for giving to the wine a specific character that varies from one vineyard to the other. And the beauty of, the, of, the, of tasting through the Barbaresco single vineyards from Produttori is that they're all made identically. Interesting. So one winemaker, one winemaking style, very... Classic and loyal to the grapes and to the and to the vintage. So when you taste uh, when you compare two, three different single vineyards from Produttori, you really compare uh, the soil, the exposure, the vineyard factor, and not 
the inf much influence from the winemaking style, which is again the same for for all of them. Well, so this wine is called the Ovello yes. uh, Vineyard, also known as a Cru, and the uh, 2009 Ovello Barbaresco, um, highly complex. Obviously, a lot more going on than this, the the, the Longi. Um, this is delicious. Still have the red fruits, a little darker fruit profile as well. Um, the acid is is very prolonged, um, and it's still this wine still tastes very young at 2009. Yes, now Barbaresco is a wine for a long life, so Barbaresco Ovello is being a Barbaresco single vineyard reserve, is kind of a top of the line, and uh, it's uh, f from a 2009 uh, vintage, which was a warm vintage, and here from this e the extra heat in the summer, you get a little extra darker, riper uh, red fruit uh, uh, filling in the wine, but uh, of course these are the best grapes selected from the Ovello vineyard that are used to make the Ovello Barbaresco. Then with other grapes from the very same vineyards, we make our standard Barbaresco and eventually from the younger plots, the Lange Nebbiolo. So the, the single vineyard, the Ovello in this particular case, is always a selection of, of the best grapes from that specific from that area where, where it, it comes from. And of course, it has a superior wine. It's, we, these single vineyards are only released in certain vintages when all the conditions are correct to give us a very good uh, quality through the board so all the nine vineyards can stand up uh, to the level th that we require to be reserve and at that point we release the single vineyard. Well I think the 2009 um, is a great vintage for a wine that's approachable now. You can open up and pour it and enjoy it or you can also age it because Nebbiolo can age forever. Aldo Vaca, so much going on here in uh, in our studio today. What a treat. Thank you for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thank you. Well if you want to check out uh, Prudatore do Barbaresco, you can check out com and Aldo Vaca is the managing partner, managing director um, and was such a treat. Uh, that uh, Crew Barbaresco, the Ovello 09, runs 62 bucks. I'm sure you can find these at Esquin and Pete's and McCarthy and Shearing and all your top wine stores. And if they don't have it, you ask them. You tell them to get on board. So stick around. When we come back from this break, we've got uh, lots more happening on Happy Hour Radio. Home of the Great One. Mark Levin. Weekdays 3 to 6 p.m. Talk Radio 570 KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right. Had a great conversation with Aldo Vaca, Prudatore Lo Barbaresco, and right now I'm in the mood for some great spirits. And I think great spirits is one cat uh, pal of mine, Nathan Kaiser of Two Bar Spirits down in Soto. Nathan, welcome to Happy Hour. Hey, thanks so much. We're so happy to be here today. Yeah, good to have you back. I know we had a very brief chat um, about nine months ago now. Time flies when we're having fun. That is so true. Though It was a lot of fun um, at, uh, was it, the Wine Folly? Yeah, she's Madeline a crazy Puckett. character. Loved her. <laughs> she's great. Love that. Well, let's talk about. Let's get our listeners back up to speed about Two Bar Spirits. Um, tell us where you are, when you were founded, and how you got that name. Definitely. So we were founded in uh, October of uh, 2010, and we released our first products in October of 2012. So it took two years to get up and running. Uh, we launched with a vodka and moonshine, 100% grain to glass, uh, and have uh, launched a uh, bourbon as well, the first all-local made-in-Seattle bourbon ever, uh, which is a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and uh, the name itself, I love it. I get a little goosebumps when I talk about it. 
but the name comes from my family's ranch in South Texas, the Two Bar Ranch, which has been in the family for five generations. My grandfather was born on it, still works it, and has a good Lutheran man. He never did, but previous generations moonshine, so we're carrying on that family <laughs> legacy. Well, uh, very interesting. So uh, it is March Madness, and you said South Texas. I think there's a school called Texas Southern that's playing in uh, the big dance. Are you familiar with those schools? A little bit. You know, I was, uh, my dad was in the band growing up, so, uh, we never got into too much sports, but I'm, I'm a big diehard Texas guy. We actually had soil from the ranch shipped up and underneath the birthing table for our two boys so they could be born over that legacy. Oh. But the football, I'm, you know. (laughs) Football guy? All right. Well, um, so you mentioned something about uh, two bars. It's named after your ranch, but also you mentioned vodka and moonshine. For our listeners, let's talk about the difference between vodka and moonshine. Yeah, definitely. So vodka is one of the most, I actually think, one of the most amazing spirits out there for the simple reason that it can be made from anything. Um, It's anything fermented and then distilled to 95% alcohol by volume. And so every culture, every region will have a different vodka. Ours just happens to be a uh, wheat and malted barley vodka um, and has those wonderfully reminiscent uh, notes of a Hefeweizen, which is what we make on site and then distill into a vodka. And a moonshine... Wait, so you make, actually, you do a beer, and then you distill the beer, which is how most alcohol is made with taking either a wine or a beer, and then you take the alcohol off. But it still has some aromas, huh? Oh, most definitely. So some of the fruity notes, a little even the citric uh, notes come across into the spirit. It's, uh, you know, we did it, and it's, uh, I honestly thought, uh, a little fun note, that the vodka would be about 95% of our sales, but it's been 50-50 with a moonshine, even though the vodka's won a gold medal, has done exceptionally well for us locally. Um, but yeah, it's been uh, it's moonshine's been a new for people, so maybe vodka's people are familiar with it, so they want to try something like moonshine. Well, what's the, what's in moonshine? You said the vodka is uh, wheat and barley. Yes, sir. And then what makes moonshine different? So moonshine traditionally is a clear corn whiskey. So it's essentially, if you will, an unaged whiskey. It's a whiskey before it's gone into a barrel. It's new make out of the still, proof to the correct proof uh, that you want to bottle at. And our moonshine essentially is that whiskey foundation with a hint of that summer sweet corn. And it's a really wonderful sipping whiskey. Uh, well, let's talk about the corn. Where does corn come from? I, I would say Yakima. <laughs> Where do you get your corn from? We actually get our corn not too far from Yakima, out of Quincy, Washington, uh, near the uh, near Vantage off of I-90. Now, does that corn come in like um, cobs of corn, or is it dried <laughs> kernels, or is it popcorn? Tell me what it looks like. I'm so happy it's not on the cob, because that would kill me. <laughs> we actually get it in one-ton totes, which are those big, big bags, uh, the super sacks, as they call them. Uh, and people kind of a one la- ton, a two thousand two hundred pound, one hundred percent, yeah. Or is it two? Th- I'm thinking kilos. Two hundred, two thousand two hundred pounds, yeah. Wow. Uh, and people laugh. They're like, uh, "Oh yeah, when you say you're going through a ton of grain every two days, you it's literal." And I was like, "Yeah, we don't talk figuratively around here. Um, we right now we're milling two tons of grain every week. Uh, it's coming in and we goes right back out as." to a local farmer who feeds it to her cattle. So Very cool. So you are based down in the, the south of downtown district, Soto. Uh, tell us where you're at. So we're right on 4th Avenue South, just south of Lander, across from the Orient Express, a uh, great restaurant that's kind of a... Uh, uh, how to it's a landmark. This. It's a landmark. I think that's great. <laughs> uh, and our address is 2960 4th Avenue South. Uh, we have a tasting room, and you can also come in, 
sample all of our spirits, as well as uh, see how we make everything grain to glass. Very cool. And I understand when uh, you got started in 2012, you had, uh, well, I don't want to say rudimentary equipment, but you had what you <laughs> needed. Last time I was there, I saw something bright, shiny copper piece. So what's that all about? Yeah, well, we started with a lean startup approach to getting up and running a bulk milk tank and a 50-gallon stainless steel oil drum, uh, etc. We recently upgraded to a beautiful uh, copper still out of Germany um, that just is producing wonderful flavors. But we've also upgraded our entire brew house, if you will, because we are, as we were saying, making beer, uh, to a 400-gallon or 15-barrel system. And uh, so now we're doing about 400 gallons of wort production per day with the new equipment. So the wort is what we call kind of the beer production, and then you distill that. So if you take 400 gallons of wort, how much product, how much finished spirit will you have? Not very much. (laughs) Uh, So we'll get a few hundred bottles out of that, or we'll fill one 30-gallon barrel a day off of that. Oh, okay. So 30 gallons a day. From 400 gallons. Wow. About and, 8%. And so, and everything evaporates, everything's gone, or how do you know when it's when it's finished? By taste. Oh, by taste. Yeah. I try not to drive home too much. Yeah. But everything is, you know, we sample everything to make sure that the flavor's where we want them to be, et cetera. We're really dialing it in in terms of volume to input to output, but it really, at in this craft level, comes down to taste. How do Where do your taste buds work? What are the profiles that you're looking for? when to cut, when to start collecting. It all comes down to personal taste. Wow, sounds like I'm speaking with a master distiller. Nathan <laughs> Kaiser, founder and uh, well, master distiller of Two Bar Spirits down in Soto, right across from the old Andy's Diner now, the train cars, uh, which are an Orient Express. Um, you've got, speaking of taste, you've got this brand new bourbon. Tell me about this product I've got in my glass. It looks golden. Well, it's almost a butterscotch golden maple syrup color. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the bourbon itself is uh, the first all-local made-in-Seattle bourbon, and it's at 100 proof. So it's 50% alcohol, and uh, when you sip it, you get wonderful notes of uh, butterscotch, vanilla with a honey finish, and little subtle notes of dark chocolate and cherry. Um, and we are milling, mashing, fermenting, and distilling, and aging everything on site. Uh, and uh, the bourbon, we've been exceptionally pleased with it. Um, a fun note is that when we released it, it was relatively, it was a nine-month bourbon, and we've been, with every batch, releasing it lo- or aging it longer and longer with the goal of getting to where we don't know, right? We don't know where the pl- pr- uh, flavor profile is going to end up. We're just going to have fun and just keep trying to make ba- better and better bourbon. Well, I just took a sip of this, and it's called Two Bars Bourbon? Two Bar Bourbon. Two Bar. Two Bar. So it's just two B-A-R, two oh, Bar. Oh, I see. Two yeah. Bar. Got it. We don't have a second <laughs> distillery or anything yet, so that's why it's still singular. Uh, I love it. So Two Bar Spirits, uh, Two Bar Distillery in Soto. You've got this new bourbon, and um, it is absolutely delicious. And I'll be frank that uh, the, the um, fledgling micro distillery uh, industry here in Washington State has had a little bit of a rough start because everyone realized that there's a cash flow, there's a business element to it, so they had to get their spirit out. And uh, I'll say this, that I think your nine-month spirit was actually one of the better ones because it's all about the hearts of the spirit. Right. We know that alcohol, there's different types of different versions of it. Some of it's uh, hot, some of it's a little heavier, some of it is dirty. Um, you get the clean part, which is called the heart. And this spirit is aged in um, new ch- charred oak barrels. Right. So uh, new charred white oak, American oak. White oak. And it has to be, in order for it to be called bourbon, 
it has to be aged in that new charred white oak. I love it. Um, uh, this is absolutely delicious. I like the fact that it's about a two-year-old bourbon, and the, the oak profile is all about the sweet nuances, the vanilla, the toffee, the honey about the oak, because sometimes you can get a little bit too much tannin, and I think right. that tannin has been very soft and even in this two-year period. So it's a, it's a very gentle spirit, even at 50 proof, or excuse me, uh, 50%, 100 proof. Yeah, thank you. You know, and I think... Uh, the flavor profile comes from a number of factors. One is we have a wonderful mash bill. The grain that goes into it contributes a lot of flavor. Um, but two, a longer fermentation and a really exacting distillation and then aging in the right type of wood. And that by that, I mean the right toast and char really provides a lot of wonderful uh flavor profile for a relatively younger bourbon. Well, let's talk about where our, our listeners can find this spirit at stores and at perhaps a, a bar. Oh, definitely. So, uh, all BevMo's, Total Wines, uh, Whole Foods, Metropolitan Markets, um, almost all of the independents locally carry us. A few of the QFCs like U Village, uh, Wine World up on 45th is a wonderful supporter of ours, and Esquin. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you've got great penetration already, and uh, Nathan Kaiser, great to catch up. I'm excited about your bourbon and excited about your uh, new piece of equipment, the uh, the copper still down in Soto. So, once again, how do we find you on the internet? Uh, TwoBarSpirits.com. TwoBarSpirits.com. Nathan Kaiser, thanks for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Hey, well, coming up, we have a little version of our own reality radio show, and that is A Day in the Life of Mary Hill Winery. Coming up, we're going to speak with Richard Batchelor, the winemaker extraordinaire, award-winning, uh, world-class winemaker in the little town of Mary Hill down in the corner of Washington State. So stick around. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Lars Larson has the real story. Weekdays, 6 to 9 p.m., only on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Talk Radio 570 KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now, back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. We had a great time with Nathan Kaiser of Two Bar Spirits down in Soto. And it is March, March Madness in Washington Wine Month. And it's my pleasure to have uh, this reality radio segment with our, our friends, our partners, Mary Hill Winery. Richard Batchelor, winemaker from Mary Hill, welcome to Happy Hour. Great, thanks to be here. Hey, excited about it. Last time we spoke, we chatted with Vicky in February, and uh, they were just doing, looking at some bottling. Um, tell me what's happening down at Mary Hill uh, with you right now. Well, it, you know, spring has certainly sprung. All the bulbs are up, um, but the grapes, they're still lying a little dormant. You know, the mornings have been cool, so that's delaying that. So we haven't had any early season uh, scares yet. And, and, you know, the frost pattern looks pretty mild for us as well so we're not too worried about that we should see some growth coming in the next maybe week to 10 days um so it'll be a little earlier than normal but not not too much ahead of time so for the vines i guess the first thing we would see is some weeping so they say we know that the uh the canes are producing some uh liquid to help facilitate the the bud break yep so we call that uh sap flow so you just sort of get like you know raindrops sort of looking like just forming on the, all the new pruning cuts and that's when the, the flow is starting from the roots and everything's starting to move and then about a week later from that you'll see little woolly buds emerge and then the first leaves will push through. 
Ah, okay. Well, this is a very exciting. A new vintage has dawned, and uh, with uh, the, the the sap. What do you call it again? The sap. Sap flow. Sap flow. Okay. Well, um, that's what's happening in the vineyard. Tell us what's happening in the winery there at Mary Hill. We are blending all of our 2013 red wines. So we are going to bottle about 60 wines this year. So there's a lot of variations and little components to put together. 60 Um, wines? Yep, 60 wines. Wow. (laughs) Right? you can't get uh, you can't get bored with the, the portfolio here. There's certainly a new wine each day for you, which is great. That's exciting. Well, well um, so you got red wines and white wines for blending, or just red? Yeah. So the the white wines are all blended at this point. They're all set and ready for bottle. They've gone through uh, cold stability to make sure there's no tartrates in it. Um, so they're sitting in tank, and uh, come mid-April we'll start bottling the rest of those white wines. Uh, we've We've bottled our rosé that's out there in the marketplace, the 2014. Uh, gorgeous, lovely pink color and just really nice, smooth fruit. What are the grapes in that rosé, the 2014 Mary Hill rosé? It's uh, predominantly Sangiovese, and then uh, there's a little bit of Grenache in there. Ah. That just helps fill out the, the mid-palate and just add some softness and round to it. Well, I can't wait to try that. And when you said, for our listeners out there, um, we talk about white wine, we talk about cold stabilization. So um, briefly, white wine has something called um, tartaric acid in the wine. It's a suspension. And when you cold stabilize, tell us what that means. So we're... Uh, we chill the wine down to just below freezing so that when, you know, if you put it in your fridge at home, you won't get, they call it wine diamonds. You know, it's a little white and sometimes yellow crystal that would, would fall out of solution if the wine gets too cold. And it just doesn't look as uh, sightly in the bottle. You know, people go, oh, is that glass in my in the bottom of the bottle? But no, it's just a tartrate crystal that's formed. And, you know, if it gets, the wine gets too cold, that happens. So we go and stabilized by adding crematata which is a you know a household kitchen um, food additive and that just forms the nucleation sites for the the tartrates and they fall out of solution and then we we rack the wine clean off uh, that sediment and so then you don't get it in your bottle perfect well of the 60 wines you are um, blending right now do you have one one red wine in particular that's very exciting for you yeah, our Reserve Cabernet this year, uh, so 2013 Reserve Cab, it should get bottled in, in June. We have access to a couple of new vineyard sources that uh, are really going to elevate that, that wine. It's got um, a couple of different vineyard components, as I said, with some of the existing ones. So it's you know, going to really have some really interesting tannin structure, a lovely fruit profile. It's what we're really looking forward to in this wine. When can we look for that release? Is that will be six months from now or...? Uh, no, we've still got a uh, previous vintage that we're on. Um, so this wine, it's bigger. You, we really want it to sit in bottle 12 months before we we release it for sale. Um, you know, it's, it's hard. We always talk about our current wines in the winery, and, and then the tasting room staff get excited, but they've got to get through uh, <laughs> the wines that they're currently selling. So it's one of those things. There's always a bit of delay when it comes to production and, and sales. Well, patience is a virtue, especially when it comes to winemaking. And uh, Richard Bachelor, winemaker from Mary Hill Winery, thanks for joining me on A Day in the Life of Mary Hill. Yep, my pleasure. Hey, I look forward to seeing you at Taste Washington next weekend, right? Yeah, that'll be. Look, it's a great event every year to catch up with uh, people, and people really enjoy the wines, and it's a, it's a great, 
great time for everyone. Fantastic. Well, um, have a safe trail up to Seattle, and I'll see you at Taste Washington. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning in today for Happy Hour Radio. I want to thank our guests, Aldo, Vaca, Nathan, Kaiser, and Richard Batchelor of Mary Hill. I hope to see you at the Northwest Women's Show today and tomorrow. And for sure, next weekend at CenturyLink, we have the Taste Washington event. Uh, look for me. I'll be pouring some wine at Coral Wines. Uh, the number one table, table number one at Taste Washington. Look forward to seeing you there. And uh, if you're not, tune in to next week's show. It'll be great. Remember, folks, life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers.